All right, let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness to us. Thank You for the gathering of the saints where we can render to You to ascribe to Your name all that is all that You are worthy of. And we pray that as we have sung these songs, Lord, we have, that we have prepared our hearts for the ministry of the Word. Lord, it is Your Word and not my own that goes forth May it be a blessing to your people, and even in an introduction, may your people be edified. May we grow together as a local expression of the body of Christ and be faithful witnesses where you have placed us. This we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right. All right, guys. It's been a while. It's it's rare that I go sev- several months without preaching through a book expositionally in some way, shape, or form. And I think it was last December or, or November where we uh, we started a study in marriage, and then we covered a few other important topics, and stuff just kept coming up. And I think mostly in a good way, things that we can work through together as a church. Um, there's nothing in the Bible that says we can't cover things by by topic. Um, so here we are, finally at a book where we can go through verse by verse, and I think what may be different about this is we, because it's Old Testament and you have huge chunks of narrative, the style might be a little different, the approach might be a little different, however we will go through this uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. I'm pretty excited. Um, book of Daniel is something that I have longed to preach for quite a while, I think when you get into pastoral ministry, there's just some books you have to at some time preach through. Daniel is one of them. You know, Romans is another one. The book of Revelation, I think, is another one. And of course, one of the one or two of the gospels. There's just some things you, you just relish the opportunity. You look forward to it. And I think with the book of Daniel, you know, I'm glad I waited till now because if I had preached this like maybe six or seven years ago, I would probably be taking back a lot of what I had taught, um, especially the book of Daniel is, is um, a piece of scripture where I have uh, significantly uh, changed my mind on several of the issues presented. So I'm very thrilled to be doing this now, and hopefully it will be beneficial to you. But I, I've always enjoyed the book of Daniel. I've appreciated the stories. You know, when you grew up in, if you've grown up in the church, you went to children's church or Sunday school. You went through the Bible stories, right? You did creation. You did Cain and Abel. You did Noah's Ark. You know, David and Goliath, Samson and Delilah. And then you had, dun, 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 Daniel and the lion's den. And it's funny because you knew what was going to happen. You knew Daniel was never going to get eaten, right? You knew that the ship, the ark, wasn't going to sink, right? You knew Adam and Eve were going to fall. And yet... These stories never got old. You always wanted to hear them again and again and again, and there was always something new to learn. And I think Daniel is especially that way. And so uh, I think as we work our way through this, we will encounter a lot of really solid teaching that will, uh, I, I, I pray, will help us grow as a church together and really anchor our hope on the truth of God's Word. Um, so so Daniel, is a, Daniel is a big deal. Daniel is very important to our understanding of the Christian faith and how the old fades into the new. I think there's just some very pivotal passages that we'll spend a good amount of time on so that we really understand 
uh, what God is telling Daniel and then by extension telling us. So today will be an introduction to the book, and I realize that introductions aren't the most exciting thing, so this may seem more like a lecture than preaching, but trust me, we'll get to preaching at some point. But I just want to lay out the, the, the primary issues at hand here, the context, and just w- things that we can look forward to, ways that I would like to uh, see us grow and really uh, latch on to. So uh, the book of Daniel, an introduction. And I think the first thing of note here is simply the meaning of Daniel's name. It means either God is judge or God is my judge. And I think that's very appropriate because Daniel does confront us with the truth. And it can be a shocking truth at times that God is the judge. He is the heavenly judge. He alone determines and declares what is right and what is good and what is holy. He also declares that which is evil and stands under his judgment. So in the book of Daniel, we encounter God's judgments of things, among many other things. But that is a huge statement. In a world full of judgmental people, we all have an opinion on things. And we all believe that our opinions are are probably of, of a greater quality than they actually are. But to say that God is judge or God is my judge is a, is a very humble assessment of the situation. You are saying God makes the final call. And not only that, He makes the final call concerning me. And His judgments are always right. You guys perhaps have seen the, uh, you know, the tattoo on many persons, and it says something like this, only God can judge me. That is a very true statement. Only God ultimately can judge you, but have you actually thought, have you stopped and thought about what that means? Is God going to judge you according to your own works, or is he going to judge you in the light of the person and work of Jesus Christ? Because everyone is going to be judged by God. A A truer statement has rarely been made, but how will he judge? But one thing is certain, and it's certain in the book of Daniel, he will judge in righteousness. He will judge according to his own standard. And so it's a very fitting uh, theme for this book, and it's a very fitting name for Daniel, who is a man of God who entrusts himself continually throughout his entire life to the righteousness of the Lord, of his covenant-keeping, uh, his covenant-keeping God. And so, uh, suffice it to say, the author in uh, conservative evangelical circles, Calvinistic circles, is thought to be the book of Dan- is thought to be Daniel, the character in the book. He is the one who wrote the majority of it, at least. Uh, the main the, the main issues concerning authorship, um, if you if you actually just put aside liberal apostate scholarship, is uh, typically Daniel is thought to have written for sure seven through twelve because he identifies himself in the first person. So there's twelve chapters in the book of Daniel. Four because he acknowledges himself, is King Nebuchadnezzar, king, the king of Babylon. He writes chapter 4. Under dispute, and I wouldn't say violent dispute, but it's more of like, okay, who really wrote this? Uh, chapters 1 through 3 and 5 and 6, the reason Daniel's authorship is questioned is because it's written in the third person. Da- Daniel, Daniel is described in the third person rather than describing himself in the first, as he does in chapter 7 through 12. So this does, but this by no means indicates that this was that 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 chapters one through three and five and six were inserted centuries and centuries later. It was most likely, if not Daniel, it was a contemporary of him. It was it was it was uh, common for 
a man of Daniel's station. He was very high in the uh, Babylonian government to have a scribe. So we shouldn't think of it as, as, as surprising or unusual for someone else to have written it. And, and, we can, and we can say that, we can hold that up and still affirm divine inerrancy. This is, the book of Daniel in its totality is the word of God. Uh, breathed out by the Holy Spirit. So we can trust ultimate divine authorship and trust what it says to us. And so that is the author. When we talk about the context, that's another thing we have to keep in mind because this is going to impact, I would say, impact a lot our view of uh, Daniel's prophetic witness. We have to understand the context. And so the backdrop are primarily two empires. There is the Babylonian Empire mentioned in the opening chapter, and then, of course, in chapter 5 with the writing on the wall, with the downfall of uh, King Belshazzar, and then the, uh, the rise of the, Persian, the Medo-Persian Empire with uh, Darius the Mede, otherwise known as, some would say, King Cyrus of Persia. We'll get into that later in terms of who's really whom. So, the big backdrop here in terms of Babylon is the Babylonian exile. You have to remember, Israel went apostate. Jeremy covered that well this morning in Sunday school. You are dealing with an apostate nation who has, as a whole, rejected, remnant aside, has rejected the just and good rule of Yahweh over them. They have forsaken his law. They have disobeyed him time and time again without repentance. And so the context historically is the Babylonian exile. So Daniel is in Babylon writing of these things probably the earliest, earlier, early 6th century. Um, and then Nebuchadnezzar comes along, he conquers Judah, and of course there's a massive deportation of Jews to Babylon, and of course the Lord gives them very clear instructions. He's kind of like, go on, go on with life, I'm, I'm still with you, I haven't abandoned you, you know, have families, plant gardens, seek the welfare of the city. So their instruction is very, is very, very clear. They can still live in obedience to Yahweh, they can still show repentance, they can still trust in the Lord as the only God, even though they're in a land uh, rife with idolatry, which again, hasn't changed much from where they came. Israel was a land rife with idolatry. So it's the same thing. And they're still called to obedience. And at the center of this, we have the young man, Daniel. Initially in this book, some would say that he's maybe a teenager or in his very early 20s, most likely, and he has his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, known popularly today as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They go into captivity. They are educated so that they can serve faithfully in the Babylonian royal court. And of course, they become men of prominence because of their relationship to Yahweh. They are able to speak for him. Daniel is known to known for his wisdom. He is able to not only interpret the dreams of the king, he is able to tell the king what his dream is. And so we see him elevated in rank as time goes on. And so it's against that backdrop. And then, of course, a few decades go on, and then we see the fall of Babylon, all foretold by the Lord to Daniel. Okay? And we see the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire. So that is, that is the historical context. Now, again, I am briefly uh, summarizing all of this because I don't want a 10-week introduction to the book of Daniel. We're going for one. And so that is, that is the historical context fleshed out over over several decades. And so now we come to the themes. What are some important themes, some important patterns? Those are always important to know 
when you're going through a particular book. You men who have joined me for our Wednesday night study of Jonah, we do spend a significant amount of time looking at the text and saying, now you see, this Hebrew verb is used here, 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 and here. And it's telling us of a particular pattern that the Lord wants us to pay attention to. And so in the book of Daniel, we see patterns as well. We see particular themes. And, and, and each of them are very significant and I think play an important part in the Christian witness today. So we kind of want to uh, recognize these as we move on through this book. And of course, there are several. I think one that especially stands out that Daniel is known for is the theme of prophecy and visions. Right? Daniel is a man who received many visions uh, throughout this book. We see Daniel is primarily a prophetic book. It, it foretells the future, right? We, we break prophecy down into foretelling and forthtelling. One tells the future, one is preaching, okay? So, when it comes to prophecy and vision, there are a lot of visions in this book. There's visions, there's dreams, and they foretell what is going to happen uh, in terms of the rise and fall of empires, the, the, the Jews specifically as a nation, and then, of course, the visions regard the accomplishments of the Messiah. So very significant visions that Daniel is receiving. Now, we dwell on this for a while because this is where all of the opinions, the various opinions, incompatible opinions of the book of Daniel come, come to bear, come to the forefront. There is no shortage of friendly and some kind, sometimes unfriendly debates about what these prophecies actually mean. And it seems like, it's, it's especially relevant now because it seems like every time there is this major attack on, on Israel, or there are these major rumblings in the Middle East. We start going back to our old, to our old books, or we, or we turn, or, or we turn to the book of Daniel. We see, 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 right there. This may be a sign. This, may, note the, note the uncertainty. This may be a sign of the downfall of hum, human civilization and the rise, the subsequent, subsequent rise of the Antichrist, the beast of Revelation. And we love to speculate about that. But I'm not concerned about speculation from the book of Daniel. I'm concerned about what we can be certain about. And I believe the book of Daniel, as, as many as, as are there, there are challenging texts, the book of Daniel gives us a lot of certainty regarding God's plan for the future, much of which, from our point of view, has already been fulfilled. But you have to understand that the book of Daniel and its view of prophecy has been influenced by to, uh, by the, 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 the time period in which Christians were living. So, so the fact that we ascribe certain, uh, <laughs> certain theories, right, write papers, espouse certain views in our own time is nothing unique. Right? Think about uh, one, of, one of the most popular views on the book of Daniel was what was called the anti-papal view. Right? If you lived in the time of the Reformation or the time leading up to it, the Protestant Reformation, that one, Everything. There was an antichrist hiding in every bush. Everything was against the Pope. The Pope was the antichrist. In our own confession, the London Baptist Confession 2.0 of 1689, it says that the, the Pope is the antichrist. And we remind you guys in our membership class, it's a product of its time. But there, there, everything in Daniel, right? Everything. The little horn, the despicable king, sometimes the the whatever ruler came in the Roman Empire, it was all it was all the Pope, because the Pope was seen as so evil, and even the even the Vicar of Christ, one who stands in the place of Christ. So they like well, they're looking at their text and they're saying, well, this has got to be the Beast of Revelation. 
Okay, maybe not the Pope, but definitely the papacy. All kinds of speculation. So it's, so it's nothing new. And then, of course, from that, and this is courtesy of James Jordan's uh, commentary on Daniel, the writing on the wall, he sees a second view that's related to the anti-papal view that rose out of it, and it's called the Antichrist myth approach, right? So it's sort of more generalized, right? First, it was this, Daniel speaks against the papacy. Now, it speaks against, more broadly against the Antichrist. So according to Jim, James Jordan, this view rose partly due to the French Revolution, which caused many to wonder whether there were greater evils than the Roman Church and the Pope. So this, is a spa- this view is espoused by many, by many who now observe a decline in Western civilization and see the rumblings in the Middle East as proof of, a, of an inevitable worldwide freefall out of which will rise, you guessed it, the Antichrist. And there's plenty of debate of whether the Antichrist is Middle Eastern. Is he a Muslim? Is he a Jew? Is he Romanian? Right? I mean, I remember reading a book that was written in, I think, 1990 or 1991. I read it in 2004, and the opening sentence says, somewhere, somewhere in Europe. Like, oh, we got, we got, we got the location now, right? Somewhere in Europe. A bad man is plotting his takeover of the world. And I'm thinking... Well, now this guy's already had a midlife crisis. You know, he's getting a little older now. I wonder what he's doing now, but where is... He hasn't popped up on the scene yet. So there's still a lot of speculation. There's a lot of speculation when it comes to this. And we want to be able to be certain. But this just demonstrates the, um, just the reality of the, of the various evolving views of the book of Daniel. So this is the, probably the most common view even today uh, connected to also the dispensational view, but they believe that everything that's happening now points to the rise of an antichrist. And of course, there, there's sort of this composite that we have drawing from various scriptures and, 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 and interpreting verses in isolation. We put all those together and say, see, the beast of Revelation, this is what the Bible teaches. And we would say the Bible does not teach that. So that leads us to the third view. And this comes out of the antichrist view, and that is the dispensational approach. Now, let me, let me preface this with saying, like, th- this, is, this, is, this still may be the most widely held view, but it is a view that is on the decline. It was very popular during uh, the time after World War II, and then, of course, the rise of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Okay. Communism was seen as connected very intimately with the rise of the Antichrist and the one world government. Now, I'm not going to get up here and, and, and take pot shots at our dispensational brethren. I disagree very strongly with this view, and I think, and I think it needs to, I, I do think it needs to go away. I don't think it's helpful to the church. And I think it brings a pessimism that prevents Christians from wanting to be zealous for their community and active in society and have an optimistic view of the gospel, which is, I, which is what I believe scripture teaches. But all that to say, there's many good brothers who espouse this view. But what this does is that it, it says that the, the book of Daniel deals primarily with future Israel, even a, few, even, even a time future to our own time. And what it does is it inserts huge gaps in prophecy, the, the most famous of which is in Daniel chapter 9. So we'll move through that uh, very carefully. But all that to say is many are beginning to abandon this view, and I think they're flocking more to a, a, a covenantal view. So the fourth is the skeptical view, and I'm not going to interact a whole lot with this one, just so you know that it's out there. Because of, because of uh, liberal, liberal theology, um, a, lot of, a lot of uh, uh, 
scholarly work done in the, uh, the 19th century and even up to now, basically says that the book of Daniel is unreliable historically. It takes all the supernatural out of it. This is the skeptical approach. Daniel didn't really write the, Daniel didn't really write this book. If there was a Daniel at all, you can't rely on the visions. You can't rely on its his, the history that it, uh, that it presents. Um, they give Daniel also a late date. Typically, I think it's the third century. I want to say third century BC. And so it's unreliable. Um, the only thing that's, it's useful are maybe things relevant morally to society. Right? That's kind of the excuse that's given. But we would present that Daniel is inerrant. Daniel is inspired. Um, Daniel is the word of God. And Daniel is historically accurate and reliable. And we can learn a great deal from it. So view five, view five, told you this is going to be like a lecture, uh, is the uh, covenant historical approach, meaning that the prophecies that are contained here in the history and prophecies contained in Daniel not only are from Daniel's own time and that it is accurate and reliable, but it's basically detailing God's plan for Israel in the old covenant era through the exile and the subsequent rise and fall of empires culminating in the coming of the Messiah and his accomplishments. So it doesn't deal primarily with things future to us, but things future to Israel in exile. Right? These were promises made, and for the most part, they are promises kept. So we are, we are dealing with things that have already come to pass. So you're not going to hear me prattle on about the, uh, the, the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. No, you're going to hear me prattle on about the destruction of Jerusalem in B.C. 586. So we'll have fun with that. Plenty of fun for all. So that is our, that is our perspective. So most of what has been reported to Daniel from our perspective has been fulfilled. But he is speaking primarily to, uh, speaking to the destiny of, of Israel and everything that he promises will happen to them. And of course, that culminates in the work of the Messiah, which is talked about at length. So there we go. That is, that is the prophecy and vision. And that's just, that's just one major theme. So let's see what else we can get through here. How about faithfulness and devotion under persecution? So let's try to package that into one thing. We can learn a lot from Daniel, right? The central character of this book. Uh, Daniel is one of the few people in the Bible against whom no evil is spoken of by, uh, by God. Daniel is a very, you say he is a very solid character. He is a, he is a kind of man you would want as a friend. He's the kind of man you would want to disciple you. He's, he's, he's the kind of man you would want to keep company with. He and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, demonstrate faithfulness and devotion to Yahweh in the face of adversity. This is the kind of adversity we have not even gotten a taste of yet in our own Christian experience. And of course, while we are thankful for that, we recognize that that upholding faith and devotion to our Lord is not going to be without a fair share of suffering and rejection and public censure, which is what happened to Daniel and his friends, both under Babylonian rule and Medo-Persian rule. So no matter the era, persecution does come to the people of God. Even when you see history kind of continue with what has been prophesied in the book of Daniel, you see intense persecution upon the Jews, and some who want to be faithful die horrific deaths. So we see this faithfulness and devotion 
primarily in Daniel's life of steadfastness. Remember, he is a very young man, pretty much a youth when he is taken away to captivity. And then by the time uh, that, that, that King Cyrus arrives on the scene, he's involved in the affairs of, of, the, of the Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel most likely dies in his 90s. So he has seen a lot. A lot of time has gone by. The majority of the exilic time period has gone by in the life of Daniel. And here is a man who has kept the faith. He has persevered under trial and he has remained faithful to the Lord. No evil is spoken of him, while even some of the most valiant and faithful of God's people fell into egregious sin when tempted. And while Daniel is known for his scraps with principalities and powers, he is not known for his compromises. He is a righteous man who walks with God his entire life. We see this devotion by in, in the opening chapter when the four of them do not, the fab four, do not eat the king's delicacies because they do not want to defile themselves. I think we see that faithfulness and in in devotion positively, right? Faithfulness and devotion is not merely a description of the things we don't do. They are the things we do positively. I think a big example of that is you notice that Daniel volunteers the power of God, right? He volunteers the knowledge and wisdom of God. He steps up when the occasion calls for it. He is not passively waiting for an opportunity to make his God known. He is actively involved in that enterprise. The fiery furnace. Bow down and worship this statue or you will be thrown into the fiery furnace. That, That sounds, I don't know about you, that sounds very unpleasant, very unpleasant way to go. You know, most of us, we just, we want to live a long, happy life and hopefully die in our sleep surrounded by our loved ones. Fiery furnace is the furthest thing from our mind. But there they, they, they do not, they, they stand up for, for Yahweh, they are faithful to him, say, even if he doesn't deliver us, we are not going to bow down to your image, O king. The lion's den, probably the most famous story in Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den. He prays to his God with an open window, and then he is thrown in the lion's den, but he is faithful to pray because he prays to the living God. And then, of course, they are faithful in confronting kings. I think that's something Christians can learn a lot from. Right. Are we willing in our own time to faithfully confront our own elected representatives and tell them that there is only one ultimate king and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ and he is currently exercising judgment in all the world. So repent and believe or face judgment. We see in Daniel's life and his friends, they faithfully confronted Nebuchadnezzar's pride as well as King Belshazzar's pride, which of course eventually led to his ruin. And in this, they were persecuted. And we can learn from their example whenever we live in an environment that is hostile to the gospel, that is hostile to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We want to be faithful. Connected to that, here's another theme. I think this one is really interesting. Is divine intervention. We understand on a broad scale that the Lord is sovereign, right? He's in charge of everything. But he often imposes himself in real time, in the various situation, in various situations throughout this book. So he intervenes in the life of Daniel and his companions, and what he, and he's there to provide not only protection, but also wisdom and miraculous deliverance from those who oppose him. Fiery furnace, the lion's den. Remember that when Nebuchadnezzar has his first dream, he's about to kill everyone until Daniel steps up. That was only because of divine intervention. God chose to speak through Daniel. And of course, that saved the lives of many. Here's another theme. 
God's, how about God's sovereign rule? God's sovereignty over everything. The fact that he is ultimately in charge, right? Not that he's just sort of in some vague way running the course of history, but that he is personally in charge. He is the one to whom all kingdoms and rulers must answer. There is no, there is no ignoring it. There's no denying it and there's no escaping it. He has the power. He has unilateral authority to exercise his will and judgment upon all the earth. And I love how this, how Daniel just sort of breaks the dam uh, that, that would, that would sort of stand in our minds between Israel and the rest of the nations. It clearly presents that God is not only the God of Israel, he is the God of the Gentiles. He is God everywhere. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he demonstrates that again and again, even to the eventual, what I would interpret as the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar and even King Cyrus. Pretty amazing. We find that God is ultimately control, in control of everything and determines the rise and fall of kings. He puts King Nebuchadnezzar down, destroys his pride, and then raises him up again. Clearly, the prophet Daniel sees God not only as God, but as king. The one to whom we must all give an account. And we find this too in, very, in a very stark expression later on in the book of Daniel, that God, the Ancient of Days as he is characterized, who has given all rule and authority to this character we, we find is the Son of Man. So in all this sovereignty, we see the rise and fall of kings as well. It's another sort of sub-theme, right? The rise and fall of kings. We have the great statue in Daniel chapter 2. We have the fall of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation and restoration. And then a subsequent acknowledgement of God's ultimate divine authority. And I think finally, a theme that can't be missed is a theme of resurrection. The resurrection. The final chapter of Daniel talks about this. There is this reference to a resurrection of the dead, which of course, as we get into the New Testament, is, a, is an immensely important theme and deals with the very destiny of the people of God. It, it deals with the very substance of the gospel that when we, are, when we are brought to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are imparted with the gift of resurrection life, a, a kind of life that ultimately conquers death and gives us hope and eternal future with our Lord to rule and reign with him. You think about this theme too as it plays throughout the book. Israel in exile, the destruction of the temple was a kind of death. And as promised by the Lord, they would be returned to the land. They would be returned from exile. That restoration is a kind of resurrection. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego sentenced to death in the fiery furnace. They were as good as dead. Same with Daniel in the lion's den. He was as good as dead. And he was there overnight, but then alive. In Daniel 7, we see the Son of Man standing before the Ancient of Days, receiving honor and authority. This is a picture, this is very significant, because this is fulfilled in the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ. We are having a sneak peek of the resurrected Christ being vindicated before our Heavenly Father. And so there's, there's a lot here to learn about the theme of resurrection and God's power, not only over earthly kingdoms, but over death itself. And so moving along, just to get the, if you, if you, if you guys have your uh, fingers ready in the book of Daniel, 
sort of do a jet tour through what's going on so we kind of know what's coming our way. Just a brief summary of, uh, of each chapter. Remember, there's sort of this back and forth, there's this interplay between God's dealing with the Jews, but also God's dealing with the Gentiles. So in chapter 1, we have Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, taken into Babylonian captivity. They are able to serve in the king's court, King Nebuchadnezzar. So we see that play out in chapter 1, where they refuse to eat the king's food, and of course end up being fatter, healthier than the others, clearly demonstrating God's supernatural favor on them. Chapter 2, of course, is the big statue. Nebuchadnezzar has this terrible dream. He wants not, he wants not only the interpretation of the dream, but he wants those to, those in his council to let him know what he actually dreamed. And so Daniel, as God is, is giving him wisdom and insight, tells the king the dream, interprets the dream, and of course, goes on to, goes on to describe the rise and fall of earthly kingdoms, culminating, of course, into the entrance of the kingdom, the eternal kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, interestingly enough, Nebuchadnezzar takes, takes the wisdom that Daniel just gives him and, and says, okay, I'll build an entire statue of gold and command everyone to worship it. I mean, come on, what a knucklehead. Who does that? The Lord just spoke to him through a dream, telling him very, very accurately what the destiny of his own empire was going to be. And he says, nope, nope, I ain't going to do it. I ain't going to stand for it. The whole statue is going to be gold. The whole statue is going to be Babylon. And of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow down to it and are thrown into the fiery furnace. But there is a fourth man in there who keeps them from perishing. And of course, they are, giving, they are given great honor by the king. Chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream about being cut down. This is the chapter that I believe chronicles Nebuchadnezzar's actual conversion to being a worshiper of Yahweh. He is cut down, he acts like an animal for a, for a designated time, and then he, his mind is restored, and of course that comes to pass. Chapter 5, this is where we come to the famous tale of the writing on the wall. Belshazzar, so, so a lot of time has gone by, a few decades at least. Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's successor, something that's his grandson, sees the writing on the wall during this great blasphemous feast. Daniel's called in. He interprets the writing of the wall on the wall, which in which he explains that Babylon is going to fall. And of course, that very night, Belshazzar is killed, and Babylon falls to the Medes and the Persians. Chapter six: Darius the Mede. Darius the Mede is now the new ruler. Daniel, of course, is given great honor and esteem. He is promoted, and of course, when that happens to Daniel, other other uh, other. Uh, counselors, people up in government are going to get jealous. Happened then, happens today, happens all the time. And so, of course, they trick the king into giving this, this declaration, this decree that for, for an allotted amount of time, no one can pray to any god or man except King Darius. And this means that Daniel will be thrown into the lion's den because Daniel is a godly man and he will not cease praying to his god, but he survives. Unharmed. Chapter 7. This is where we come to the majority of the apocalyptic visions. This is one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible because it links the promises of the Old Testament to their fulfillment in the New. This is a huge bridge text. So again, we're going to want to understand this, the significance of this, this son of man standing before the ancient of days and receiving dominion to rule the world. 
He also has a dream of the great four beasts representing those kingdoms, the four kingdoms. Chapter 8, here Daniel has another vision of the goat and the ram, which symbolizes the rise, at least my interpretation, symbolizes the rise of both the Medo-Persian and Greek empires. Of course, the, the Medo-Persian empire is subdued by Alexander the Great, the, em, the emperor of the Greek empire. So, uh, this also describes the desecration of the Jewish temple and sanctuary. So there's a lot going on here. And all of this stuff, of course, comes to pass. Chapter 9, another very pivotal chapter in which we will spend a decent amount of time. And I think this is great because we see Daniel uh, humbled, confessing the sins of his people, pleading to God for grace and mercy and restoration. Praise on behalf of his people. This is the great, this is the passage of the great 70 weeks prophecy and I am really looking forward to that. That is a very difficult passage, but it ultimately points to the coming of the Messiah, what the Lord Jesus Christ will accomplish in his people. And of course, uh, we'll have a wonderful time unpacking that. I mean, like I said, there, there is something to offend everybody in Daniel chapter 9, and so we'll just be offended together, and then we'll feast. Don't miss it. <laughs> Daniel 10. Daniel has a vision, another vision of a man who gives prophecy of future events. And here we see, we have a peak kind of behind the scenes that this, this particular angelic being we, being, we would think, was delayed because he was battling the prince of Persia. So we think a, a, some kind of principality or power behind the, uh, behind the throne of Persia. Really interesting. Chapter 11, we're getting there. Chapter 11 is very detailed. This is, um, this primarily tells, foretells this, this, the, the, the conflict between uh, the eventual rulers and, and kings, especially what we call the Seleucid and Ptolemaic di- dynasty. So when, when Alexander the Great died, right, they basically asked him who would be his successor. And legend says that Alexander the Great said, give it to the strong. Well, his empire ended up splitting up into, in, in, into four providen- provinces, among them were the Seleucids and the Ptolemaic uh, dynasties. And so th- they, were, they were two of the four who, who ruled in that area of the Middle East. So basically, this, give, this leads into this very interesting character um, who has been debated about whether or not he's a future Antichrist or, or, a, or a, uh, a king in their own time. So this is where a lot of the debate a lot of the debate lies in where many of the pieces of this composite of a so-called antichrist, future antichrist, are put together. So we want to we want to move through that carefully, and I don't want to get caught too much in the weeds of saying, you know, of, of saying it's not really this, it's this. I do want to make a positive presentation about uh, what is actually being revealed here, but we do we should be able to answer our critics in some in some regard. Chapter twelve, the final chapter, more prophecy. Uh, tells us of a time of, of great distress for God's people, but also comes with a promise of the resurrection of the dead. And so there is a very mysterious ending to the book of Daniel, but once again, it's going to be a great, a great chapter and a great time for us uh, in study. So you have, you have you know, the audience of Israel, you have the audience of, of primary, primarily Gentiles. Even some of Daniel was written in Aramaic rather than Hebrew, signifying it's the audience being uh, the Gentiles. 
So, so that's really interesting in and of itself. You have this sort of back and forth between history, prophecy, apocalyptic visions. It's, it, it's, it's just loaded with a lot of very interesting, uh, interesting items. And so that is a very brief rundown of, of the book of Daniel. And I would challenge you in the weeks ahead, uh, it won't take a lot of time, but try to read Daniel, the book of Daniel, once a week. Just get out your Bible and read it. There's free audio Bibles if you can't sit still and read. If you want to listen to it on audio, go for it. Just take in the Word. Become very familiar with it because, of course, the, the prophecies in Daniel are interrelated. They're related to one, to, to, to one another, and we want to be able to rightly divide the Word of Truth uh, together. So uh, please take advantage of this time and read and reread the book of Daniel. So we come to the final section today, and whenever we get into a new book, I, I, I like to kind of piece together, you know, the, the anticipated blessings from this. What do I desire as, as, as one of the pastors at Emmaus Road for you guys to get out of a study of the book of Daniel? We don't just want to say, hey, there's cool Bible stories and wicked visions of apocalyptic destruction. No, there's, there is a blessing for the reader. There is a blessing for us as we study this together. And I think, and I think there are several, and I think some of them are, are quite obvious. So, in no particular order of importance, here are some of the things that I would like us to get out of this. Um, and please, you know, please write these down. I think first is most fundamental, and it's a challenge that Daniel inevitably brings. One is I want us to simply, un- I want us to have the blessing of understanding God's Word. There are some things in Scripture God says, and it's so obvious what He means. It's very, it's very clear. Some take a little more digging. Daniel takes a lot more digging in comparison with, uh, with other books of the Bible. But I believe that it is God's word and that, that being so, he wants us to understand it clearly and he wants us to be able to apply it well. So we just simply want to under, we want the blessing of understanding God's word, to be able to look at the text and say, yep, we have it regarding doctrine, regarding our theology, but especially prophecy. And so when, whenever Daniel talks about these issues of, of prophecy or God's sovereignty, Prophetic fulfillment, what it means to live as a, to, to live in a godly and holy fashion when you are a sojourner, right? When you are a stranger in a foreign land. That's why we read First Peter today. He, Peter's writing to exiles, aliens, sojourners, people who don't belong, people who are being marginalized in their own society. And as much as we'd like to say, yeah, the gospel's advancing and things are going to get better, we should not be surprised at all if we experience to one degree or another fiery trials in our own lifetime. We are assaulting the gates of Hades. They are on the defensive. I would even say they're even on the run. It does not mean that they are not going to insult and try to divide us and try to attack us, even if that means physical attack. And so we want to understand God's Word in light of all of that and interpret it correctly and be encouraged by it. See, when we understand God's word in the book of Daniel, we understand that God keeps his word. This is a praiseworthy thing. The saints can rejoice together because we understand that we serve a God who keeps his promises, who is not slack when it comes to showing his own goodness and fulfilling his own word. I want us to understand the times regarding the coming of the Messiah. Understanding the accomplishments, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you understand that, you understand the point of the Bible. 
So you can't understand Daniel and miss that point. But this all points to Christ, who is the true Israel. This goes along with number two, understanding God's plan. I say his plan in, 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 in light of the view of history. Do you realize like, God is not required to tell us anything? God is, God is completely self-sufficient. He is completely happy and satisfied in his own heavenly repose, right? He's God. And God is not required to reveal us, reveal to us any mysteries. And yet he does. You know, it's a marvel that he, it's a marvel that he tells us things. Because the first thing we like to do is say, oh, well, God didn't really say that. I know what I heard, Lord, but you surely didn't mean that. You surely, you can't mean what I think you mean. And yes, he does. And so he tells us the future. He, tell, he, gives us, he gives us insight into his redemptive plan, his plan for Israel. His plan to triumph over his enemies. His plan to demonstrate to us that there is only one king, that there is only one God, and all the nations are called to serve him. Listen to Isaiah 46, 9-10. through This is powerful stuff. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. See, that's exactly what he does. Declaring the end from the beginning, and Daniel is a very profound sample of that. He takes a timeline and says, here's how it's going to start, here's what's going to happen in the middle, and here's how it's going to come to a, a mighty conclusion. His purpose will be established, he says. He will accomplish all his good pleasure. And certainly what we find written in the book of Daniel represents God's good pleasure. And God, it was also in God's good pleasure to communicate this to us. What a, what a mighty God we serve. What a kind God we serve who reveals mysteries to people. <laughs> so also, too, understanding God's Faithfulness. Daniel, the book of Daniel, is, is a wonderful revelation of God's faithfulness, his faithful character. That even as Daniel and his, and his, uh, his partners in crime, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, 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 they demonstrate really what we could describe as, as, as an unhindered, unwavering faithfulness in the face of great adversity, great resistance, great treachery. And yet the only reason they are faithful is because they serve a faithful God. And He is able to keep them, keep them alive, right? Keep their witness, keep their integrity in the midst of a great, of great hostile forces. Fourthly, also we want to understand God's sovereignty. We've kind of been over this, but we never want to miss this, that God is, that God is in charge, that God, that God reigns. And that he is the one we answer to. We'll get some, te we'll get some texts on that uh, pretty soon. In fact, let's link it to this one. Understanding God's world. Right. His perspective on government and authority. I think, I think we underestimate Daniel as, as, as containing a lot of wisdom as to how we are to interact with the state. Right. And we, you know, I think a big question comes up. Should we mind our own business or should we as Christians seek the conversion of our elected representatives? Should we, should we seek the conversion of our elected representatives? Absolutely. 
How is that going to happen if we never talk to our elected representatives? How is that going to happen if we never confront them with the truth that even though they are, elect, they are our elected representatives, they answer to the king? Well, I didn't say it was my king. It doesn't matter. The Lord Jesus Christ is your king, and you are accountable to him. And, and then, there, then you have this wonderful platform for the presentation of the gospel. I mean, we've seen it. I mean, guys, any of you in here who have been up to, to Denver to either support or oppose these various abortion bills, I mean, I just, I, I love sitting there and watching it as person after person sits there. And these elected representatives, more than half of whom despise all things, all the things of God, they sit there and they have to hear again and again and again. You need to repent. You need to believe the gospel. You can't support these unjust laws and think that you're going to get away with it. It's a beautiful thing to see that confrontation take place. It's a beautiful thing to know that there are pockets of the confessing church in Colorado that don't put a premium on being nice. We take the truth in boldness and in clarity and we confront our governmental structures and actors, whether they are good or bad. We confront them with the reality of God and His righteousness and His appointed King, our Lord Jesus. Happened in Nebuchadnezzar. Right? Walking on His, walking on his sweet balcony. Right? Man, Babylon. Babylon, so lovely. This is not Babylon that I have built. Right? So great. I have all this all this wealth, all this land, all this authority. Oh, but there, and you think about, of all these kings, of all the kings that are presented in the book of Daniel, other than Christ himself, Nebuchadnezzar was the most, was, was the most despotic. His, his power in these earthly rulers was definitely the most unilateral. And yet there was a higher voice than his, a higher authority Coming down from heaven, how little you know, Nebuchadnezzar. Your power is going to be taken from you, and you're going to act like a wild animal for a time. And then, only then will you know who the true and living God is. Listen to Daniel 4, 34-35. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Oh, we love saying that. God, what have you done? Lord, what are you thinking? And even the king of Babylon can recognize that the Lord can do what he wants. This is Nebuchadnezzar talking. This is Nebuchadnezzar making a decree. Here we have what I believe is a converted former pagan despot. And now he knows the true and living God. He knows who holds all the power. He knows the one to whom he must answer. And so we have an amazing perspective in the face of some very wicked elected representatives. I can't call them rulers. They're not our rulers. They're our elected representatives. But they try to rule wickedly. We also need to understand God's people that even though we may live in a largely pagan society, we still are responsible to lead a holy life. We are to live 
In light of God's fulfilled promises, we are to live for God's glory, and we are to seek the welfare of our own city, understanding that where God's people are, there is, there is God's presence. Listen to what Romans 12.2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So no matter how pungent the odor of godlessness is in your own respective living situations, no matter how godless your culture is, you are called to not be conformed to it, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It doesn't matter how pagan a culture is, God, God's promises are sure, He dwells inside every believer, and He is faithful to give you the power to live faithfully no matter what those quarters are. And so Daniel's life becomes, I think, a very solid model of living a holy life in a, in a very secular and ungodly environment. And yet look at the impact he has. He sees the conversion of two pagan kings, one of whom makes blasphemy punishable by death. That's really something. <laughs> Finally, we go through the book of Daniel because I want us to understand God's grace. You think of the very difficult situation that Israel is in corporately, and of course that Daniel is in as an individual along with his three compatriots. But the book of Daniel, for God's people, gives us a great understanding of God's grace shown toward his people, even though his people are in exile. Even though he had to discipline them and, and remove them from the land. There is still hope and there is still immense comfort. I mean, when you start reading Daniel's visions, you'll start to notice this pattern picking up as he's, you know, as, as from Daniel 7 on, is that these visions tire Daniel out. You see, he gets this vision. There's no strength left in him. It's like he's pale. He's sick. He has to rest. These, the, what, what he sees is overwhelming for him. And yet he is not without hope. In Daniel 11:10 10 through 12, we see this. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright. See, what are you on the ground moping for, Daniel? Stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, the words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. Right. Isn't that amazing? It's like when you just finally decided to utter this prayer, God dispatched me. I'm way ahead of you, Daniel. God is way ahead of you. And then you go down here to verses, uh, let's see, I believe it's 18. Let's see. See if I got the right, uh, the right passage here. In any case, he, he gives, he gives Daniel this entire vision. And then he, and then he comforts him. And in verse 18, sorry, I got the wrong chapter. It's Daniel 10, not, not, not 11. So he says in verse 18, then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. He said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, may my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. What an encouragement for the Christian that finds him or herself in a very hostile spiritual situation, that we have the word of the Lord to strengthen and encourage us so we can stand upright and continue serving God. 
no matter what the circumstances. And these are very difficult circumstances for Israel at this point. And even Daniel, a godly man, is struggling with the physical weight, struggling physically with the, with the weight and impact of these prophecies. And yet, the God who sends this message is the same God who gives him the strength to receive it. And so he gives us that strength. So in all of this, do not forget in the book of Daniel that we serve a God of grace. We, we, we can't walk away from this book without understanding that God is a gracious God. He is a merciful God who strengthens His people regardless of the circumstances. And I do believe that we, that we always seem to be on the cusp, but I think we are going to enter a time, depending on our geography, that is going to be very difficult for, for, for us as believers. There, there, is go, there are going to be lawsuits. There's going to be public censure. There's going to be humiliation. And yet in that... God would have us rely on His grace and not on our own strength. We can have all the doctrine, all the sound doctrine in the world, friends, but if it makes us proud, right? if we start relying on our own strength and wisdom and fail to get on our knees before the living God and cry out to Him for strength, then we must be disciplined in that regard. God must refine us so that we rely only on Him, even if it means breaking us, even if it means putting in circumstances that are completely beyond our control and completely beyond what our perceived limits are. Said it often before, God may give us more than we can handle, but He will never give us more than He can handle. So that His grace and His glory will be put on display in us. So in all these things, we, uh, we look to the book of Daniel, and I, and I trust and I do pray that we will benefit richly from it. So we'll, we'll be in this book for a while, uh, but uh, I think it will be a very enriching time. So with that, let's commit our study and the rest of our fellowship time to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Uh, we thank you for the book of Daniel and even just giving a very brief jet tour, probably missing several things uh, that could have been said, but, but uh, we can commit ourselves, Lord, to the work of your spirit, your gracious provision alone to uh, encourage us by the things that have been said. And, and what a note uh, to close on, that you are a gracious God, that we are, as your, as your people, as your new covenant people, hundreds of years removed from this prophecy, that we are not without hope. Rather, we are filled with a living hope, a hope of resurrection, a hope of eternal life, a hope, Lord, that eagerly anticipates uh, the continued manifestation of, your, of the promises that you have kept. Lord, we do not have to be afraid, and we do not have to doubt if any of us in here are struggling with that. Lord, if we have unbelieving hearts, Grant us repentance. Uh, put within us an urgency, Lord, to, to fall on our faces at the throne of grace, to cast all our cares on You, knowing how deeply You care for us. Lord, that, you, that in Your grace, You did not even withhold Your only Son, that, that which is most precious to You, to see us redeemed, to bring many sons to glory. So we thank You, God, for, for Christ, our faithful High Priest, our faithful elder brother, our Lord and our Savior, who brings all these promises to pass so that they are ours. We thank you in his precious name. Amen.